Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History. I'm your host, Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website dedicated to bringing you information about comics of all eras, especially the old stuff. This episode is going to be a little different than the ones before it. In previous episodes, I've provided history lesson style recaps of the earliest DC comics. However, the amount of research involved to do those shows has been extremely time-consuming. It requires far more effort than I imagined when I originally conceived the show. That doesn't mean I won't still be doing those type of shows. It just means that I'm going to have to budget my time better. And right now, I'm in the process of a big move, which includes moving my entire comic collection. I'm sure some of you listening to this show have experienced moving your collections a time or two. Many of you probably have collections containing hundreds or thousands of books. I'm certainly not claiming to have the largest collection out there, but I do have more than 53,000 comics. That's about 200 long boxes and another 100 shorties for trade paperbacks. Far more than an average collection. You can imagine the effort it takes to move all that from one location to another. In addition to the time it takes to physically prepare for and move that stuff, my collection is not easily accessible as it usually is. I try to pride myself on being able to find any book in my collection in less than a minute. Sometimes two for the more obscure, obscure indies that's in a box with other boxes piled on top of it. I'm usually very organized, but with this move, things are out of order and less accessible. That makes it harder to do research. So for this episode, I'm taking a different approach. I'll still be talking history, and not all of it about DC, but the focus will be less research, more personal experience. I'm calling it the DC history of Mike's Amazing World. As you may know, my ultimate goal as a collector is to own and read every DC comic ever made. But what you may not know is how this grand quest all started. What kind of person would take on such a task? To find out, I'm going to look back at my own history involving comics, and of course, DC. I don't know what the first comic book I owned was. Some of my earliest memories do involve comics, but even more involve Star Wars. I was born in 1973. I was four years old when Star Wars hit the big screen in 1977. I did see it in the theater during the first run. Yes, Scott Gardner, this makes me a true Star Wars fan. I know that I was crazy about it, like most kids at the time, but I don't remember going to the actual film itself. What I do have memories of were the toys. I was obsessed at this early age of collecting every one of them. I had every one of the Kenner action figures from the first wave. My Luke Skywalker even had the rare double telescoping lightsaber. Look it up, folks. It's expensive. Wish I hadn't so sold my toys so cheap. I also had the small head Han Solo. I always thought the later big head one was ugly. Play sets? Yes, I had those too. I remember going to a friend's house. He had the Death Star playset with the trash compactor, gun turret, and retractable bridge. I loved that thing and must have begged for one for a Christmas present. Eventually, I had not only the Death Star, but the Millennium Falcon, the X-Wing, the TIE Fighter, the Landspeeder, and a few other vehicles. Unlike many of my friends who also had the toys, I was obsessed with knowing exactly which gun went with each character. No, Han Solo could not use that blaster. It was a stormtrooper gun. Han could only use the small black gun. Not the blue one either, because that did not come with his figure. 
This often made playing with other kids a little bit of a challenge, as small details like this didn't seem to bother them, but it sure bothered me. Clearly, I was well on my way to becoming a geek. One of the most vivid memories of my early days involved trading Blue Border Star Wars trading cards on the kindergarten playground. Those cards were released in waves with different colored borders. Blue was first, then yellow, red, green, and finally orange. Blue was always the hardest to get. I know I had a few of them. I think I had a full set of red and green. Strangely, the only other thing I can remember from this time period is Fonzie's boot. Someone had brought a Mego Fonzie doll from Happy Days to school one day. His boot came off and fell in a storm drain. We could all see the boot, but it was very far down and too far to reach. Although we tried several ways to extract the boot, it was stuck. I remember checking on it several times over the next few months, and it was still there. I attended the same school from kindergarten to sixth grade, and for some reason I distinctly recall going back years later and looking into that storm drain to see if Fonzie's boot was still there. It's really strange the things you remember as a kid sometimes. In any case, I loved the Star Wars toys and collected the trading cards, but what about the comics? Marvel had been producing a Star Wars comic since the debut of the first movie. Check out Star Wars Monthly Monday on the Two True Freaks Network for great coverage of that comic. I saw my first Star Wars issue in the waiting room of a doctor's office in the fall of 1979. It was issue 30. It had Princess Leia on the cover. She was being chased by stormtroopers. I know I read it in the doctor's office, but I was very confused by it. My experience up to this point was only with what was in the movie. Scenes from the movie were depicted on the trading cards to keep the imagery fresh in my mind. The figures and vehicles were all from the movie, yet this comic book was telling a story that I was not familiar with. These were not adaptations of the movie, although they were, there were some of those too. These were original material. And I hated it. Passionately. I don't know what it was about the comic that I disliked. I can't remember anything about the story itself, but to me, it wasn't the real Star Wars. Maybe it was the Infantino artwork, maybe it was an unfamiliar setting. I can only speculate since I don't remember the story exactly. Maybe this negative first experience in cross-media storytelling is why I hate when stories from one media are transferred to another. Most so-called comics fans these days tend to spend most of their time talking about the latest big-budget movie based on comic books. I'd rather comics stayed in their own media, and I really don't like the trend of comic books being turned into movies, and then these people that go see the movies say they're comic book fans when they've never read a fucking comic. It seems to me that the original medium of comics gets lost in the Hollywood glitz. By the same token, I'm not a big fan of film properties that are adapted into comics. Whether I can tie these opinions back to Star Wars number 30 isn't clear, but maybe it did influence me a little. Star Wars number 30 was likely not the first comic I ever read. In fact, I have several comics still in my collection from my earliest days, some of which predate that Star Wars comic. I don't really know when or how I acquired these comics. Most of them were gold key kitty titles. Huey, Dewey, and Louie Jr. Woodchucks number 26, Looney Tunes number 23, Croft Super Show number 1, 
Disney's Comics and Stories number 460, and Beep Beep the Roadrunner number 78. I also had Pebbles and Bam Bam number 34 from Charlton. The gold keys were all Whitman's. What is a Whitman? Oh, that's a big can of worms. But let's open it anyway. This is a history show, after all. It starts way back in the golden age of comics with a company named Western Publishing. Western had product licenses from many of the major entertainment houses. They produced board games, puzzles, coloring books, etc. Among the Western licenses were the Disney characters and the Warner Brothers characters. When it came to producing comic adaptations featuring these characters, Western partnered with an emerging publisher in the fledgling field of comic books, Dell. The partnership was structured so that Western held the licenses for the characters and hired writers and artists, etc., to produce the content. Dell was then responsible for publishing and distributing the comics. Dell was already a book publisher, later they're named Del Rey Books, and had a distribu distribution network with newsstands where comics were sold. So it was a good arrangement for both companies. Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, one of their early joint ventures, had one of the largest sustained circulations in the history of comics. In some reports, sales were over a million copies per issue. Meanwhile, Western continued their product license business with the same characters. They had other distribution channels for coloring books, puzzles, etc., mostly aimed at toy stores. The brand name they used when distributing many of these products to the stores was Whitman. The Dell Western partnership lasted into the early 1960s. In 1962, the arrangement was severed. I don't know the circumstances which caused this breakup, but the results were clear. Now, instead of one comic book publisher, there were two. Dell continued to publish their own comics, those which Western was not a part of, and Western formed their own brand of comics called Gold Key. This new comic publisher continued many of the former Dell titles that Western had already been producing. This included both both the Disney and Warner Brothers lines. Gold Key even continued, continued the numbering of these titles from Dell. Despite the different publishing brand, the producer of the content had not changed. Gold Key also launched some original content, including Magnus Robot Fighter and Dr. Solar. These characters were solely owned by Western and not licensed. Now you might be asking, why are there some comics that have a gold key label, and yet there's others of the same comic that have the Whitman label? To understand this, you should know something about the way comics were distributed. These days, the primary source for comic books is the local comic shop. You may also buy them from an online store, but this is essentially just an LCS that ships the comics to you instead of you going to the comic store. The comic store orders and receives their comics from a distributor, Diamond in this case. Stores are required to place their orders for comics a few months in advance of the actual arrival. If the store orders 100 copies of Batman's and sells 80 of them, they still pay for all 100 copies and are stuck with 20 of them which hopefully they can sell as back issues. In this way, Publishers know months in advance how many copies of a comic to produce based on the advanced orders. 
This system is known as the direct market. This has not always been the way things worked. I'm amazed at how many of the younger comic fans don't understand this. The direct market did not exist at all prior to the late 1970s. Prior to that, the system used was newsstand distribution. In this system, publishers and distributors would agree on how many copies of a title should be produced. The publisher would print them and send them to distributors who would move those out to newsstands for sale. After some time for sales, unsold copies were returned to distributors for credit by the newsstand retailer. The distributor would only charge the retailer for copies sold. Distributors, in turn, would collect the unsold copies and credit would be issued by the publisher for each of them. In this system, the publisher was on the hook for any unsold copies. Therefore, the sell-through rate, the number of copies co sold compared to the total print run, was paramount in order for the publishers to make a profit. 50% sell-through was often considered quite good. This means for every two copies printed, only one was sold. But there were some problems with the system. First, shipping all the unsold books back to the distributor costs money. At some point, it was decided to strip off the top portion of the cover and just send that part back. Newsstands were supposed to dispose of the rest of the book. And they did, by selling them to consumers, without that top portion of the cover at a reduced price. Did you ever wonder why so many old comics were missing the top portion of the cover? Well, that's why. Publishers also used to put a notice on page one indicating that it was illegal to sell copies without the cover. But guess what? It still happened, and it happened a lot. What's worse is that the distributors would not even rack all the copies of the new books. They'd put them in a warehouse and count them as unsold copies, never offering them to consumers. Remember the sell-through rates was so important in order to make a profit? How can a book sell if it never reaches the newsstand? In the 1970s, the newsstand distribution system had broken down to the point where it was harder for publishers to survive. Enter Whitman. The direct market, which arose in the late 1970s, was established partly to com combat the distribution problem. But Western publishing had their own ideas. Why not send comics to their toy stores? These stores were already selling a variety of Western products under the Whitman label. If they sold comics to the stores, they could make them non-returnable, and the store would be responsible for unsold copies, not the publisher. But, if you just send them to the, to the stores with the gold key label, the stores could return them through the newsstand distributors for credit. To get around this, Western created a new label using the same brand as their existing toy products, Whitman. Toy stores were already familiar with the Whitman name and trusted it, so selling to them was easier. In many cases, these comics were sold in multi-packs, which contained three issues for a single price. So gold keys were sold via the newsstands and returnable to the publisher for credit, while Whitmans were sold through toy stores and were not returnable. The only difference, as far as the comic was concerned, was the label. In the late 1970s, DC wanted to take advantage of this marketing tool as well. These, their characters were already licensed to Western for puzzles and coloring books using the Whitman label. 
So DC produced a limited number of Whitman-labeled comics for distribution to non-newsstand markets, taking advantage of their rela existing relationship with Western and Western's relationship with the distributors of these toy products. Marvel also had their own system which used a diamond-shaped price box on the cover instead of the regular square one. These were not reprints. They just signified the distribution channel to avoid improper returns. Later, when UPC boxes were introduced, Marvel and DC both implemented differences in the UPC box to distinguish whether a comic was sold on the newsstand or in the direct market. By the early 1980s, Western finally abandoned the newsstand market entirely. Their last few years as a comic book publisher used only the Whitman label. So that long-winded explanation gets me back to my original point, which is that my early gold keys were Whitman's. That means they obviously came from toy chains, not the newsstand. One particular memory that I have is a large bin of comics at one of the local chain stores. There must have been a hundred or so books piled up in this bin for kids to sift through. Not great for the condition of the books, obviously, since bags were still not in widespread use at the time. It would be years before I even knew such a thing existed. Before the end of the 1970s, I owned my first Marvel comics, probably from one of those bins. I know that I have my original copy of Captain America number 225 with a diamond-shaped label. I also remember buying a few three-packs of Marvels. One of these I acquired at an airport gift shop. I know that I got Marvel Premiere number 53 featuring Black Panther from there. I think I also got Man-Thing number 3. The problem with these multi-packs was that you couldn't see the comics in the middle, and I was always disappointed with something in that pack. I never was happy with all the comics I got. In 1980, I turned 7. It was a pivotal year for me. Little did I know how that one year would affect my entire life. My interest in comics picked up in the early part of 1980, possibly due to my older brother Steve. He was three years older than me and had a sizable number of comics. At least I thought so at the time. He probably had three or four dozen. His favorite comics were the DC team-up titles, Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents. He had several issues of each. Even in those days, my brother and I never really got along well. We were very different. I always wanted to read his comics, which resulted in a few fights, I'm sure, but nothing that I can specifically remember. Maybe because of these fights, or just the general dislike of comics, my mom refused to let me have any DC comics. I was only allowed to buy Marvels. I also got a couple of Archies during this time, including Archie's Joke Book number 266. But DC was the forbidden comic. Most of the comics I bought in, the early, in early 1980 were Marvels. I remember Avengers number 195, Fantastic Four number 218, and Peter Parker number 42 and 44. I had two favorite titles, though. One was Fun and Games, which was really an activity book shaped like a comic. I can distinctly remember having issues 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, maybe even 13. Strangely, I don't have my originals anymore, where I have almost all the other comics from that time period. I have no idea why, where those fun and games went. Maybe I threw them out because they were all written in. I don't know. 
My other favorite was Machine Man. I think the reason I liked him was because he was purple. At this time, one of the popular TV shows was Donnie and Marie. I was a huge fan. I remember I had a Donnie Osmond doll with different outfits. Seems a little bit weird now that I'd be playing with Donnie while my brother had the six million dollar man. In any case, I remember Donnie had a thing for purple socks and the color purple in general. So of course, I liked it too. I remember that I always wanted to wear purple at this time. I had purple socks, purple shirt, pretty much everything I had would go to the store to get clothes and I'd want something purple. So it makes sense that my favorite superhero of the time was purple. Around this time, I also discovered old comics. Okay, not really old, probably only a couple years, but still, it was a new concept for me. I remember there was a little store that my mom took us to. I have no idea what the store really sold. It was just one of a one-room shop with a small back room. While my mom did her thing in the front room, we kids went in the back and discovered a cardboard box full of old comics, about 50 or so. I picked out Invaders number 27 and Machine Man number 10 from the box. I, also, I always wanted to go back to this store and look through that box again, but even as a kid I couldn't remember what, the shop, what shop it was or where it was or even to tell my mom where to take me. <laughs> I just wanted to go back and find these back issues. It took years for me to find another shop that sold back issues. As I mentioned, my brother was a few years older than me and was, he was involved in Cub Scouts. My mother was the den mother for his group and often they would meet at our house. It was there that I would meet the person who would give me my first DC fix. His name was Dirk Wood. Dirk was my brother's age, and they were friends through most of our childhood. Often, Dirk's younger sister, Toby, would come to our house and I'd play Legos with her while the older kids did the scout thing. But Dirk also collected comics, and his collection was legendary, in my mind at least. I mentioned that my brother Steve had a few dozen comics. At this time, I can remember Dirk had hundreds. On a visit to his house, I recall that they were stacked all over his room. I was envious. One of Dirk's friends named Sean was said to have even more, perhaps thousands of comics. I met Sean a couple of times years later, but I never actually saw his collection. Dirk's collection, though, was very impressive to me, and I wanted to read so many of the comics that he had, so we made a trade. I don't remember most of the comics involved, just a couple of them. I know I parted with my Avengers number 195, which had a swarm of ants on the cover. I hated ants, so I happily parted with it. I think I also gave up a little Lulu or something else. In return, I only remember one book. It was an illicit DC comic, which my mother had refused to let me have. Justice League of America number 181. This issue had Green Arrow on the cover as he was storming out of the JLA satellite and quitting the team. Maybe because it was against the rules to own it. Maybe because I recognized some of the characters from my brother's comics. I'm not sure what it was, but I liked it. And I liked it much more than those Marvel books that I owned. I was forced to keep this book hidden from my mom, though, lest she discover that I secretly had a DC comic. So while many kids, like my brother, were hiding playboys from their parents, I was hiding an issue of Justice League. Clearly, 
I'm a geek. Oh, and in case you're wondering whatever happened to Dirk, he went on to work at a comic store and eventually became a sales executive at Dark Horse Comics. In recent years, he made the move to IDW, where he currently works. If you're familiar with IDW's in-house marketing, they have a spokesperson who promotes their comics. This spokesperson character appears in previews and in their uh, house ads that appear in their comics. The IDW spokesperson is Dirk Wood, the guy who hooked me on DC Comics. So you can thank or blame that IDW guy for getting me started on the path that led to Mike's Amazing World. Of course, my first collection passion was still in full swing and got a big boost in May of 1980 with the release of Empire Strikes Back. While this would eventually become my favorite of the Star Wars movies, I think I was more obsessed with the newest wave of toys than I was with the movie itself. I had to have all the figures, of course. I'm sure that I got the AT-AT for Christmas that year. But there was also the Snowspeeder, the Star Destroyer, the Tauntauns, open belly and closed, plus the Wampa that I had to have. I still was not playing well with others, though. Nope, sorry, that gun doesn't go with Lando. The toy I always searched for but never found was the legendary Boba Fett with the missile that actually fired. The very existence of this figure was debated for years. I think it was pulled from production in favor of a fixed missile because some kid choked on a similar missile fired from a Battlestar Galactica toy. At least, that's the story I remember hearing as a kid. A quick internet search does claim that the Boba Fett figure does exist, but is super rare. I'm not sure if kids today know what it's like to have so little information available to them. When I was a kid, rumor and speculation were all we had. Now the internet makes things way too easy. In addition to the regular toys, somehow I ran across an ad for special do-it-yourself Star Wars playsets. The ad ran in Woman's Day magazine, so someone had to bring it to my attention, since obviously I wasn't reading Woman's Day. I convinced someone in my family to help me build these playsets, my grandmother I think. Later, I thought the real playsets of this type existed and that mine was built because we couldn't afford the real things. Only when I researched it on the internet decades later did I learn that they were never available in stores. Mine did not look as professional as the ones photographed in the magazine article, but they were very fun to play with. I had both the Hoth and Dagobah playsets. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can see these uh, playsets as they were appeared in the magazine. When Kenner did release official Hoth and Dagobah playsets, they seemed weak compared to these ones. Later in that summer of 1980, I recall a trip my family made to Shampooey Park for a family outing. It was memorable for several reasons, not all of them good. First off, I was attacked by red ants after stepping on an anthill. Remember I said I hated ants? This may be why. I don't remember exactly what happened. Knowing me, I was probably being a kid and provoked them. After that, I recall getting pretty sick and having to get cleaned up in a very nasty public restroom. So all in all, it was a rough trip. The reason it was so important to me, though, is that on the way back, I was allowed to read one of my brother's illicit DC comics. This one was DC Comics Presents number 26, which had just come out. 
It featured a great Jim Starlin cover with Green Lantern using his power ring to create a giant kryptonite rock which is threatening to kill Superman. Most of what I remember about this story is only from subsequent rereadings of it. That story itself wasn't anything special. What made the issue so memorable, though, was the debut of the new Teen Titans in a 16-page preview story. The story is largely a dream sequence in which Robin envisions the creation of a new group of Titans. I believe it was the artwork of George Perez which grabbed me. It was many years before I could recognize the art of a particular artist, but looking back on my early comics purchases, I seemed to gravitate toward the clean and detailed style of Perez's work. In addition to the artwork, this felt like something new to me, something being built from a true beginning. Of course, there had been an original Teen Titans. Even if I didn't know they existed, the word new in the title should have implied that there was an older team, but that went over my seven-year-old head. A few weeks after the trip to Shampooie Park, I was allowed to visit the corner drugstore by myself. My mom went next door to buy groceries. Village Drug had a comic and magazine rack right in the front of the store. I made a beeline for the rack and saw the cover of New Teen Titans number one sitting there waiting just for me. I don't recall whether I went back to check with my mom or not, but the embargo against DC Comics be damned, I was going to own this comic. I bought it right then and there and took it home and read it cover to cover over and over again. This was the greatest comic ever. The DC Comics Presents preview had done its job by whetting my appetite. This comic was the main feast. And so, with that one DC purchase, the floodgates opened. I bought Justice League of America number 184, Adventure Comics number 477, and Super Friends number 38 shortly thereafter. But the first comic I bought religiously each month was Titans. Sure, I pronounced it Teen Titans for about a year and a half, but it was still my must-buy every month for three years. Through Titans, I was introduced to the pre-crisis DC Universe and enjoyed every bit of it even the Omega Men who crossed over into the, into the Titans during the second year. I was still years away from deciding I wanted to collect and read every DC comic ever made, but this was the beginning of my quest. 1980, the year I became addicted to DC. I hope you enjoyed this little diversion from my regular programming. I'll be back again soon with another episode chronicling the early days of DC Comics. Please send me some email and let me know what you thought about this episode. If warranted, I'll be dropping more episodes about my crazy DC obsession into the feed. Thanks go out to the two true freaks for distributing the show on their site. And special thanks also to Dirk Wood for starting me on this crazy quest. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me next time for more of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.